Hello, extractors, examiners, and excavationists. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded, and we're tackling a topic today that's both a skill and an art in writing, which is how to write or maybe how to extract what is implicit rather than explicit in your writing. I am Brooke Warner, and I'm here with Grant Faulkner, who is explicitly the executive director of NaNoWriMo, (laughs) an author and a champion to other writers. And I would say implicitly, Grant, there are some things I can extrapolate from your actions and values. You are an unwavering advocate of the underdog, a humble servant to your craft, and a disciplined artist. And these last two things I know, not because you've told me, uh, but because I know that you're up early toiling away in the wee hours uh, and also because of the love and dedication to what you do and all this stuff I know to be implicitly true because of your output. And so I guess I would say that you are the king of the written word. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's the first time I've been called the king of the written word. So I think I'm you know, just going to stop right here and just call it a life, you know? Done. Why risk <laughs> losing that title or blemishing it? Um, but I actually saw you in our show document this morning at, at 4.30, so I know you're a disciplined artist as well. But this is a great topic. Subtext is hard to kind of talk about sometimes, I think, but it's at the heart of good writing for me because I think the best writing is a type of collaboration between writer and reader. You know, the, the writer provides hints of who the characters are and creates an evocative story world but doesn't reveal or explain everything or the best writing doesn't. And I think that's actually much like life. I think we walk through life kind of decoding things and picking up hints and kind of projecting scenarios. So to wield the subtext well on the page, I, I think it takes a lot of practice and a lot of reading, especially, and a lot of uh, kind of judgment calls, whether you're telling too little or telling too much. But if there's a poetry on the page, then subtext, which also is at the heart of suspense, you know, is at the heart of the poetry on the page. Mm -hmm. I love that. I like the idea of subtext as heart, actually. Um, I was thinking about how subtext is connected to indirect characterization, too, uh, because just like explicit and implicit subtext, there's also direct and indirect characterization that serves a very similar purpose. So we're going to dive into craft a little bit here for a second. You know, the first indirect characterization is when the writer tells or shows the reader what someone looks like, brown hair, hazel eyes, a crooked smile, uh, while indirect characterization is when you show someone how a behavior impacts that person's character, right? So you're gleaning something about that person through their actions. So rather than telling your reader that your character is a drunk, for instance, you would imply that through the fact that they're at the bar every night or that they wake up so hungover that they can't do their job and just thought it would be helpful to give our listeners who are like, what are you talking about when you're talking about subtext, um, some, some kind of parameters there. Yeah, that's a really good explanation, Brooke. And I think it is hard to explain. Uh, I think you kind of have to experience it. And so while you were mentioning that, it, um, it reminds me of a story that's well known for its subtext. It's Hills Like White Elephants by Ernest Hemingway. And the story is entirely a story of two people's dialogue. There's almost no description, I don't think. And the thing that's not mentioned is it's it's about an impending abortion. Um, And again, it's not overtly mentioned, but the non-mention of it is essentially the foundation of the story uh, because it it is a story of subtext. So that unmentionable thing kind of, you know, influences everything that's said and creates a tension, dramatic tension around things. And Just to add a little bit to this, I think that story is a prime example of what Ernest Hemingway meant uh, with his famous iceberg theory. And if you don't know it, 
he said that the best stories are, are like an iceberg and an iceberg, only 10% of it is above the surface and 90% of it is below the surface and it's invisible. So meaning that the story should be felt, but not seen necessarily. He said the author needs to know what that 90% is. You can't just fake it, at least in, for, in order for that 90% to influence the story. But yeah, it's 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 a really interesting, it's like one of the metaphors about storytelling that really resonates with me and that I think of often. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I've heard that theory over and over again. And there are very few writers who who do it to the extent that Hemingway recommends. And, and certainly not everybody has that skill or that attention or necessarily even that goal. But today's guest, E.J. Coe, who's written a gorgeous memoir called The Magical Language of Others, has done that. You know, she's really done the 10% above the surface. And so for those of you who are interested in gleaning, you know, what does that feel like and, and, uh, you know, to metabolize it a little bit for your own writing skills. I highly recommend reading it. EJ talks uh, later in our interview about the fact that the whole book started as two pages and was more like an epic poem rather than a memoir at first. And then she had to find a way to make it a whole book. And so to set that goal of reaching 200 pages from the original to there's a lot of extracting <laughs> that needs to be done, you know, and, and this is a unique book because it's comprised of letters that her mother wrote to her, 49 of them, after her parents went to Seoul, Korea for her father's job and left EJ in the care of her older brother. Um, and, and she was just 15 years old at the time, so still in high school. And what was supposed to be three years turned into seven years. And so it's a story of abandonment in a lot of ways, but EJ never uses those words. Um, and so that's the subtext as well. And at the center of it are these letters from her mother that are riddled with all kinds of feelings. I mean, guilt and neediness among them. And yet again, you're extracting that. She's never saying overtly that her mother is guilty or needy. And you know, so that's just kind of two of the ways that the subtext shows up in EJ's memoir, which is really profound. Yeah, EJ has so many things, interesting things to say about that, and uh, including her how the translation informed the subtext. Um, I personally love letter collections and stories written through letters, so this book is a is a special treat for me. And I always say that we live life in the gaps, meaning that we never truly know another or we can't know a person totally, so we have to interpret their signs and their code and their subtext. And it's, it's relatively easy for me to write with that in mind when I'm creating fictional worlds. In fact, I've trained myself around doing that. But, but I'm curious how you'd advise people to add subtext to their nonfiction writing book because so much of the purpose of that seems to be to try to provide clarity, to interpret the code rather than bury it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the advice I would give is to think about showing, you know, where you're unfolding something for your reader rather than feeling like you need to hold it up. It kind of reminds me of a little kid who's like, look at this, look at this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where like there's a layer of sophistication that comes in understanding and executing subtext. So, you know, here's an actionable thing that writers can do, which is to consider an event from your own life where there is a hidden meaning or an implied message. And then just try to write a scene where you are trying to make the reader understand what that hidden meaning is without having to tell them outright and see if you can. It's not easy, 
one thing that I think is quite helpful is to look at movies because a lot of us can better understand subtext in film because we're used to body language and watching people's reactions to one another and how those imply things. Uh, and I was thinking about the very brilliant film, August Osange County, as a powerful example. I love this movie so much because because of the subtext, frankly, on its face, it's a film about a family that's scattered to the wind, but they come back when the patriarch kills himself. And what unfolds from there is the story of the very narcissistic matriarch played by Meryl Streep, um, you know, who has her own deep wounds. And there's this tension with the character because she's a monster on the one hand, and yet sympathetic because the film is all about, you know, showing how she coped over the years and, you know, destroying everything in her past. She's an alcoholic. She's directing her anger at her family, but there's a betrayal um, because her husband had an affair with her best friend and there's a child that came out of that affair. And so, you know, it's, it's something that unfolds over the course of the movie. And so the subtext is kind of like, why is this family so dysfunctional? And there's very little said on the outside. But then, you know, as the screenplay writer was obviously looking to give clues to the audience as to what was coming and fleshing out the character over time by unpacking all of those moments, you know, rather than explicitly saying, oh, okay, this happened. And so that's the power of, of what's possible in story telling that's a great example brooke and i remember when i saw that play on the stage and and i just loved it tracy lutz is one of my favorite playwrights and there's a lot of great subtext in his writing so it's a great one to watch on film now um i like your advice to be patient to not rush a scene by putting everything you know into it because i think that's really key to writing good subtext and it reminds me of one of my favorite articles on writing a piece on suspense that lee child wrote for the new york times and he said that authors often ask, how do you create suspense? And you could just read that as how do you create subtext, which he says is a question like, how do you bake a cake? So in his mind, that's the wrong question, because asking that question is all about, you know, what ingredients do you, do you need and how do you mix them and how do you cook it? But he says the right question is, how do you make your family hungry? And the answer is you make them wait for hours for dinner, <laughs> you know? And so like, think about that, about how you make your reader hungry and you draw out the sense of your dishes or your story. And you let the sense kind of waft through the house. You let people imagine tasty food as they grow hungrier and hungrier. And that's what an author does with subtext in a story. It's all about, you know, planting those scents uh, from sentence to sentence. Right. And then it's, it's so satisfying when you finally get to sit down for that meal. So, uh, well, this is a, certainly an interesting topic, and I'm super excited for all of our listeners to hear what EJ has to say about it. So we will be right back after this short break. Welcome back, everyone. We are here today with EJ Ko, and she is the author of the memoir, The Magical Language of Others, which was the winner of the Washington State Book Award and the Pacific Northwest Book Award and long listed for the Penn Open Book Award. She's also the author of the poetry collection, A Lesser Love, winner of the Pleiades Editor's Prize for Poetry. She's the co-translator of Yi Wan's The World's Lightest Motorcycle. And her poems, translations, and stories have appeared in Agni, Boston Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, Poetry, Slate, and Elsewhere. Hi, EJ. Welcome. 
Hi, Brooke. Thank you for reading that intro. I know it's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's also very impressive. You've done a lot. Your book is gorgeous. Uh, The Magical Language of Others, uh, your your memoir. Uh, It's centered around letters your mother sent you from Korea during the years that you lived here in the States and she lived there. Uh, They went back to Korea, your parents, to take a job uh, for your dad in Seoul. And the letters that she wrote you while she was away are pretty incredible. Um, I just wanted to tell our listeners who haven't read it yet that they're filled with advice and observation. And also, notably, there's a lot of subtext. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, how conscious you were of extrapolating from her words, you know, what I saw in there, which was longing, regret, neediness, optimism, guilt, on and on. Can you talk to us a little bit about unearthing those underlying meanings? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I, I do have one specific example uh, for a choice I made. When I first read the letters when I was 15, I was a teenager in Davis, California. I didn't know Korean then the way I know it now and being a translator of the Korean language. And I would read the letters then and just try to understand by reading the Korean out loud and listening just at what I'm saying and barely getting things. And I would get angry and sort of throw them away or forget about them, which is, you know, why it was such a surprise to find them later moving to Seattle. But when I read them again, I found the 49 letters. I took them into a cabin in a forest in New Hampshire, (laughs) no Wi-Fi, no connection, and just sitting down and reading her letters in Korean, I just, it it felt like I was reading them for the first time because I wasn't just reading her words. I, I could read between the lines. I think the word omma in, in Korean means mom. And most of the time it's translated into mom. But as I was working through the letters, I realized there's something different about the way she uses Oma in that she uses it almost the way you would use it when talking to a small child. And that's when she starts using it in the third person more and more, like the way we might say, instead of mom, you can say, mommy thinks you're doing a really good job. Mommy thinks that you should grow up like this, and that this might make you feel better. And if you want to throw a tantrum, you should try it. So these are some of the moments that clued me into our relationship is different in that she's not right next to me. She's across the world. And she has to raise me. She has to mother me from across the world. And the way she does that is through her words. Her words want to be right next to me. And so changing mom, which it was initially all throughout the memoir. It's it's the word that appears the most. Um, changing it all to mommy was uh, one of those decisions I made to to give a sense of what's going on here and the longing and the distance. EJ, that's so interesting on the level of translation and the nuances of language. 
And I have a question. It makes me think of a question about translation. You're a translator, and I know that's really, really such an art. And I suppose it goes hand in hand to a degree with being a poet because of your attention to language, as you mentioned. Uh, I was wondering if you can talk uh, a bit about how the art of translation impacted your approach to memoir, and maybe what are the ways that translating makes you a better writer more generally? Oh, that's a great question. I know that the initial way that I learned how to translate in school is through something we call a seamless translation. And that's translating so that the language that you're translating into, you want it to read as if it was written in that language to begin with. And I would do a pass of my mother's letters from the Korean to English. And there was a moment where, and this was when I left school and I was out there in the woods, that it became obvious that by doing a seamless translation, I was also erasing her voice and I was erasing the Korean. And I went back to redo the translations, almost loosen them up so that Sometimes I'll pick words because they sound more similar than that they mean exactly the same thing. Sometimes I'll add words to create a sort of rhythm that feels familiar and look at other harmonics around a sentence because I wanted to make sure that in my translating, the Korean was always present, that even if you were to read these letters in English, you could tell this was Korean that you were reading. And it was important because it reminded me that languages have histories and those languages have histories with each other, especially Korean and English, South Korea and the U.S. And translating is, is a part of all of that. So when I write, um, I think I keep those things in mind. I keep in mind everyone in there and with me. This is maybe connected because uh, I wanted to ask you about your understanding of yourself as someone who is carrying and recording your family legacy. There's so much in the book about trauma, generational trauma and loss. And, you know, your great grandfather was stoned to death. These massacres directly affected your family. Um, you have a grandmother who survived the Canto massacre in 1923, the year she was born, mm -hmm. um, because her family passed as Japanese. And so as a writer, what kind of awarenesses do you carry with you about giving voice to those histories and stories? Yeah, I feel chills just listening to you and thinking about all that's happened. And in the same way that I think of translation, when I initially approached these stories, it was hard to take off my researcher's hat. I sort of leaned into that um, because something like the Jeju Island massacre, you're not going to find too much about it. Even um, those in our, like in my family that experienced it, they're they're gone. So the evidence of witness and also the papers and the, the exact times, you know, those are all burned down. Um, huge portion of the island was just uh, gone. 
So when I do go into looking at what happened, I look at it in where it's been recorded in American history or in English, and that's very, very like next to there's there's next to nothing at all. Um, I think there are maybe one or two scholars who mention it in their books who I really appreciate. And then I look at it from the Korean, like Korean history side, and that's different, by the way. And then you look at it if, it, if it's written anywhere in the Japanese. So I think having access to those languages give you access to the history and the memory told between different communities, different countries, because we hold those memories differently as a people than we do as an individual. And so that was sort of the very, like, outer layer of the onion, I guess. And then the deeper layer is, well, how do I know my grandmother, Kumiko? Like, how do I know her feelings about this? What can I get out of my experience of being raised by her and the things she's told me, but also the things my father's told me when he was a baby and she would tell to him or he would see arguments she'd have with her mom at the time and they'd they'd fight about it. And I, I wasn't there for that. And my grandmother's mother's not around. So, and my grandmother's not around. So, so going through all of that, but, you know, even in the moment, the story with my mother, with uh, June and Lee and her, my mother going back and forth between Tejon and visiting her mom, June, who left her. It's like, I had to go back to the emotion of the memory I felt like there are truths and there are facts that I found and maybe I can't find the exact time of the day and I could find those weeks. But at the end of the day, I leaned on what what was remembered by my family because that that memory and that emotion is what's been handed down. And it's it's the thing that caused suffering. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for, for sharing that. I think it's something that so many memoirists grapple with. So it's interesting to hear your take on it. Yeah, it's it's like, it's moving from the point of researcher to writer and memoirist to, to daughter, to child, to um, what I feel is, is the emotional truth. And, and that's been a, a guiding light. EJ, I'm a uh a writer who's somewhat obsessed with letter writing as a form. And I even just finished uh, an epistolary novel. So I'm especially excited to become acquainted with your writing. And the thing about writing, well, letters unto themselves are a very different reading experience than poetry or stories or novels. But constructing a narrative through letters is is also very different and very challenging. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the form of the memoir since letters form the backbone of the memoir. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious just how you settled on it. And if you heard anyone giving you advice to do that or not do that, I know I really struggled with it myself because I felt like writing um, a story through letters, it's just not done that often. And like I said, it does have challenges. Yeah. I don't know if I have a, a really good answer, but I guess I hadn't intended to write a memoir is probably where I'd start. I had intended to just write a book of translation. 
and it would all be it'd be the 49 letters that my mother wrote me um just sort of the original and the translation side to side with just a two-page introduction and I had worked on that and completed it I thought it was just a book of translation but whenever I talked about it or maybe the first few times I actually shared it I would get the same response which was this two-page introduction you wrote which had the content of the whole memoir sort of packed in there to give context to the letters they just said you can't say that and leave <laughs> on page two there's so much there and if you can turn two pages into 200 pages that would be something different maybe something that these letters need the letters are so important and they mean a lot to me but I think they need sort of the, the the friendship of those prose chapters to make sure we we do follow the narrative and so I went back and if you look at the memoir it's almost exactly 200 pages and structurally I you know I had to come down from 49 letters to about I think there's like 10 or 11 and picking the letters that gave me the most questions and the prose chapters were sort of organized around the letters trying to answer the question that I had about that letter so if the first letter is or maybe it's I think it's the second letter it says something it makes me go well who is my mom like what kind of person is she? What? Why would she do this? And then we go into her past. To know my mom, you kind of have to know her as a daughter, as someone else's daughter. And so that was my thinking. And I just want to say, I, I think I want to add that I'm not sure either. I kind of, after the fact of writing it, I go back in my mind and say, this is what I must have done. This is what I think I, I did, but there's a lot of stuff in there that I I can't quite explain, to be honest. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder how many people out there can relate to that. You know, this I've, I've talked to memoirists over the years, like, how did you do this? Or how did you think about this? And I think there is a like, certain je ne sais quoi quality, right? And and it's interesting because that word quality is kind of central to my next question, which is about the attention. You know, I mean, I found when I, I often do this where I'll buy a book um, on Audible and then I read it afterwards. And I, this is what happened with your book. I, I found myself like wanting to see how you laid it out. But first I listened to it on Audible mm. and there's a certain quality quality of attention that your work demands, I think, because it is very spare. And that was what led me to think about subtext being the theme of today's show, just because I, I found you packed in so much meaning. And it was your mother's letters, for sure, that also held a lot of meaning. But I, the attention, like the quality of my attention, you really required a lot of me as a reader and as a listener. And I guess it's not some, it's sort of a question, but it, it, around intention, you know, intention to be spare, 
and maybe that just comes from being a poet, but I did want to ask you about it if you were very conscious of that. That's such a great, great point to make. And thank you for sharing your experience with listening to the audiobook and going back to read the way it was written on the page. Oh, and I did want to add something about about me not knowing what's going on, um, at least not for everything. And I feel like I trust that. Like, if I'm working on something and I can explain everything I'm doing perfectly and I know how it's going to end or I know the reason for everything, I think most of the time for me, it ends up being really bad work. Mm. <laughs> it, it ends up being just awful writing. <laughs> and um, for me, for me, that's how, that's how I feel about my work when it goes there. But when I'm uncertain or, or scared and terrified and feeling very vulnerable, or there are things I want to do that I can't explain why, but I feel the urge to, that sort of takes my work past the point in which I can know or understand things. And it helps me push myself. And I think in some ways writing lets me do that. I'm sort of, I, I really like walking right up to the edge and looking over and sometimes jumping off. <laughs> and um, that's what makes it exciting. But I, I want to go back to this beautiful question um, you've, you've put together about attention and being sparse. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of that comes from poetry, but I want to say it also comes from that moment in, in when I'm in college and the counselor tells me, I'll let you uh, forego your math requirement to do this intro to poetry class. And by then I'm a hip hop dancer trying to drop out and growing up in, in the clubs of LA. I, 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 it's so curious. I, I went into the, that class and I learned the word magnanimity and I had never heard of that word before. And the way it was explained to me after showing poems about my mother was, it means by the end of the poem, you have to forgive your mother or the poem has to forgive you for not. Otherwise, it's not a poem. It's just a journal entry or just a page in your diary. But you need magnanimity at the turn, which is the end of the poem, to make it what it is. And that was, I think, the first time I was practicing that turn into magnanimity. And I did it through poetry. I would do it poem after poem. And I got so obsessed with it. And it started to affect other areas of my life. The ability to make a turn in my relationships. And in the way I see myself in my relationship with the world. Which, which really needed that turn. I was in a really desperate place. So magnanimity combined with the idea that I'm just going to set the table of events. I'm not going to take anyone else's version of events off the table. I'm going to sort of set it 
and you know you get all the settings in place and let the reader sort of make their own judgments about what happened but also let them make judgments about me and i think that meant removing or just not saying some of the things i initially would have wanted to say so that i'm i'm read in a certain way and i think that makes the reading a little more sparse a, a little more engaging but it's also more difficult i i i think in some ways because it's sort of my first major book or i'm you know writing uh, long passages in it i was i was a little more careful i guess about saying too much i think what helps is that my first draft of this memoir was very angry <laughs> that might add add something to this conversation it was a different memoir and i had to go back almost like you do with a rolling pin when you're need rolling out dough like from the beginning to end again and again and try to find those spaces where where we can where i can feel magnanimity toward what happened because yes it's a memoir and yes i'm doing this writing but this story i'm about to tell is going to affect the way i think about my life moving forward now what is like how how do i want that to affect who i am and so when i wrote the memoir for the first time by the time i got to the end i had to be a different person i had to be a different person in order to end that memoir and i had to grow in the span of writing it so i think all of those things that's so interesting ej that it started out the memoir started out differently than it than it ended up with that you said it started out with a I guess spawned by anger, um, but then changed through the word magnanimity. Um, and we often collect like close our podcast by asking our guests about their publishing journeys. And so that description of your memoir makes me think that this would be a great moment to hear about your publishing journey, um, especially because you published with a really interesting publisher, Tin House. And I don't know if listeners necessarily know about Tin House, but it um, used to be uh, one of the great literary journals. And they just recently stopped being a literary journal, but, but it's still a small press that publishes some of my favorite books. So what's the story of getting from that very beginning two-page draft to publishing with Tin House? I had written the book of letters as a translation book, and then it just sort of didn't go anywhere for several years. And then I went back to it to retranslate letters and add the the prose chapters that it has now. And even then, I didn't know it was a memoir per se. It was just, I really want to finish this work. That version is what uh, went to Tin House, and uh, the editor reached out to me. There was another publisher that was also interested, and I, I just felt really lucky because I had gotten uh, zero interest from anyone that whole time. But it was Tin House and another publisher. I, I talked to the editor of the other publisher. They're also wonderful, but when I talked to... Um, my editor, uh, Maisie, at Tin House, it was just a different conversation. I, I, I think the way she talked about the letters and the book and her, her interest in, I guess, what was 
what was already there too, I guess. I, I just remember thinking, oh, I'd really like to talk to her a bit more. I mean, that, that was as simple as that was. It's just, this is the editor I, I actually really want to talk to and um, work with. I, I just love like editors. <laughs> I know people <laughs> don't feel that way about, and, and I know people, you know, say, I don't like writers. I don't like editors. I don't like it. But I really, I really appreciate that work. It, it, I, I, and I, maybe I'm lucky that I haven't had these like sort of horrible um, editorial experiences, but more often than not, I feel like I've, I've gotten away with things and, um, yeah, it's it's just the work and the attention, and and I, I just appreciate it. Did you have an agent, EJ? I'm curious. Oh yeah, I I had an agent who accepted the the book of translations, mm-hmm. and we'd worked toward um, after it sort of wasn't going anywhere uh, toward what it what I might want to do with it next. Yeah, my agent, I found through sort of the traditional way. I went through the slush pile. I sent out, like, years ago, I sent out a lot of queries and letters, and I tried to make it as simple and basic and template as possible because when I lived in New York, I used to intern for a boutique literary agency, and I was the slush pile reader, which was really fun, but it, it was a lot. Um, and I remember just what I got from that experience was, you know, everyone tries to stand out. And that means the ones who don't try to just really stood out to me at, at the time that I was working. It's just, wow, this person is using Times font, like amazing, you know, <laughs> you know one inch margins, like no color fonts and no um, interesting other fonts just the most basic template really was eye-catching and so that's what I did I sent that out and I got a lot of no's but uh, the the agent I found I, I had a good conversation with her on the phone and she she stuck with me for many many years she really wanted these letters to go out into the world and knew that there were other stories behind the letters that I could tell and that um, there were more stories within the letters I can tell by translating um, not just the Korean but some of the Japanese she uses by including the images so you see her drawings and by being able to um, explain the English that she uses or the wrong dictionary definition for the English she uses so things like that really formed with my agent. Well thank you EJ thanks for being on the show with us today. We're very grateful. Wow. Thank you so much. These, these questions were really hard. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean that in as a compliment, as, as a way to, to push me to try to think about, well, well, what did you do and what is going on and what are you thinking about these days? So, um, and, and you both are so brilliant. I just love hearing your voices and hearing your conversation. So, Thank you for having me. Thank you, EJ. We will be right back with today's book trend. (laughs) 
So Grant, last time you and I got together in person for coffee, we talked about Substack, which is on trend and has been all year, which is why it's today's book trend. It's been a disruptor in publishing, uh, though probably more in journalism than in book publishing. Uh, That said, Substack is something that certain writers will definitely want to pay attention to and even test drive because there is real potential there to make money and to grow an audience. Uh, Grant, I know that you mentioned you were at least thinking about starting a Substack newsletter. So have you or are you still mulling it over? Yeah, just to to talk about what you initially said about Substack, you know, it's been grabbing headlines all over the place this year. And that's in part because they're actually paying big money to big name journalists to essentially write their columns for Substack. So it's shaking up the idea of where writers get their paychecks, especially if you have a big name brand to start with. But what I'm finding interesting is how uh, there's crossover with fiction writers now. And a number of fiction writers are now publishing their stories or their novels via serialization and including big name authors like Salman Rushdie. Um, there have been a lot of platforms for serialized fiction in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Uh, and I'm not sure how they've done, but Substack is definitely making people think. Um, but back to your question, um, you know, it's made me think. Uh, I've, I've started a newsletter with them. It's called Intimations, a writer's discourse uh, about, you know, you, you guessed it, the writing life. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't really launched it officially, but I'm planning to do so this week. And you can sign up now on Substack. It's live. Uh, but I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. And I'm going to, you know, offer a short essay on writing and some photo prompts and some inspirational quotes and more. Awesome. We'll definitely put the link to that in the show notes because uh, for listeners to check out. And I'm interested. I'll be wanting to follow your journey. I, I think there's a parallel to Substack and self-publishing, actually, because a lot of writers are leaving traditional media and starting Substack newsletters. And some of them have really spoken to wanting to recapture an indie spirit that they either feel disconnected from or can't access because of working at these big uh, news and media outlets. Yeah, or maybe what Substack is doing is more like the hybrid space in publishing book because it's got various options, you know, and in some cases, it's, it's, you know, Substack is paying advances to some of these big name authors. Um, otherwise, they have uh, a, a publishing model or pricing model where writers pay Substack 10% of the revenues they get from their subscribers. So, but you can also set your Substack up to be free. Uh, as I did, by the way, or or to prompt uh, subscribers to pay. So it, it shares similarities with Patreon. Um, you know, I think of it in the end, it's a blog that's also a newsletter that resembles Patreon. It doesn't make it new. It's just another way for writers to get paid for writing. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting model. And the other parallel to the publishing industry is just this growing awareness that the industry itself underpays its writers and that writers and authors can take the reins and do their own thing and, you know, with a lot more freedom and potential to make money. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. There's so much splintering going on across, you know, all media from news to blogs to television even. And I think the pay for what you want model is ultimately a good shift. Um, I'd rather pay... Uh, Hulu for the few shows I'm dedicated to than pay for 100 cable channels I never watch. (laughs) Yeah, you and everyone. Uh, Yeah, and and then there are people who are leveling criticism at Substack, which I think we should include here, uh, you know, for turning content creators into gig economy workers, essentially. But I'd argue that it's been that way for a long time. Substack didn't start that trend. Like, I've written for free for years, depending on the outlet. And so if Substack has found a way to capitalize, you know, on the fact that certain writers have massive followings and they can get paid for that, then I think that's a good thing. 
Yeah, Medium does the same thing, essentially. You know, and writers have been writing for the sometime dubious payment of visibility for too long, I agree. I recently saw a meme online that took the form of a striker's sign, and it said visibility doesn't pay the rent, which is absolutely true. So if Substack can help people get their stories and opinions out effectively and provide some money for rent, you know, that's great in my book. Yeah. Well, speaking of visibility, y'all, that is partly why we do this podcast. You know, we're we're looking to make ideas and writers and inspiration and certainly our guests visible. So with that in mind, um, it's true. Visibility doesn't pay the rent, but you can help us by spreading the word because that is one way that podcasts find their way out into the world and find more listeners uh, is through sharing and uh, giving us those stars or ratings. So we thank you so much. And we're a weekly podcast, as you all know. So we'll be back next week. 